Titus chapter 2, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Thus ends our reading of God's unchanging word. May all who hear it have faith in the true God and in his gospel. This is the second week in a row that we are covering this verse. Now, normally I, I don't spend this much time on just one verse. Yet we live in a society where false teaching abounds. Therefore, I thought it would be important for you to, to grasp some of the foundational principles helping you to discern what is true and what is false. Now, last week we defined the words sound doctrine. And we discovered that what the Apostle Paul had in mind was that Titus was to teach what was in accord with healthy instruction. And given the context of this letter, we concluded that this meant instruction in both behavior and beliefs. For in the verses following this command, Paul describes both. After defining sound doctrine, we, we then looked at this verse from, from the perspective of, of the source of sound doctrine. And we talked about two crucial questions to ask when taking in any Christian teaching. First, where does the teaching originate? Is it from the Bible or does it come from some other source? And second, is the, is the teaching consistent with the whole of the Bible? In other words, is Scripture being twisted or taking out of, taken out of context? Today we will be looking closely at this verse once more. This time we will be coming from a more theological perspective. Now, theology can be defined as the study of God. Theology is a task that's, that is practiced by anyone who, who thinks or forms an opinion about God. In fact, you're doing theology right now. Every Sunday when you come to church, you're practicing theology. What we want to discover today is, is how to determine whether or not the theology of a teaching is doctrinally sound. Throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has experienced its fair share of false teachings. In fact, the reason we have creeds like the one we confessed earlier is because heresies kept springing up time and again. The church had to have a way that they could establish a unified doctrine that they could unite under. That's why we see things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Those things were written to battle heresy. What exactly is heresy? Heresy is a false teaching that attacks one or more aspects of the central teachings of the Christian faith. These are the things that are of first importance, namely who God is, and how God saves. That being the case, I, I left you with two theological questions to ask when you're listening to another person's teaching. 
One is a teaching in line with the triune God. And two is a teaching in line with the gospel. Here's the issue. When when a person errs in, in either of these categories, then they do not possess saving faith. It's one thing to be wrong concerning secondary issues such as communion or baptism, but it's a whole other thing when it comes to the very nature of God and how he redeems his people. Salvation rides on these two crucial points. That being said, let's let's examine these two closely. First is a teaching in line with the triune God. Now, why does this matter? Look at Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first of God's Ten Commandments. And there's a reason that God put it number one, for it is the most important of them all. It is the basis of the Christian faith. If you are not worshiping the true God, then you're not a Christian, plain and simple. Now, most of the attacks that we have seen throughout church history have come at the expense of the Trinity. A a false teacher would arise and declare some, some type of falsehood against either the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. And it would be either an attack on the distinct personhood of each or on the godhood of one or more of them. Take, for example, Sibelianism. Sibelius was a a teacher from Libya who lived in the early 3rd century AD. And then he moved to Rome and became an active leader within the church. Well, a a controversy of another kind rose up from a group called the Adoptionists. Those people believe that Jesus was just a man and that he was adopted as the Son of God at his baptism. In other words, these Adoptionists did not believe that Jesus was truly God, which is a heresy in itself. Uh, Sibelius, however, thought that a great rebuttal would be, would be to claim that Jesus is not only God, but he is also the Father and the Holy Spirit. What he did in trying to maintain orthodoxy, orthodoxy is, is he erred too far in the other direction. Another term for this teaching is called modalism. For they, for they would argue that God appeared in different modes or manifestations. He's like an, an actor in a, pl- in a play who, who puts on different masks throughout, signifying a different character each time. This teaching denies the unique personhood of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. True Christian belief will declare that there is one God in three persons. What a a sabellianist or or a modalist, what, what they have ultimately done is they have tried to simplify God using their human reason. And to do this, they had to deny what Scripture says. And they, and they ultimately, what they've done, they've, they've made God into something less 
than who he really is. This same teaching still exists today. Oneness Pentecostalism is is the biggest proponent of this heresy. And the most popular pastor who who preaches this message is T.D. Jakes. He is a man who denies the Trinity and someone you should be wary of. Another notorious example would be Arianism. This is a teaching that, that was originated by a man named Arius. He lived early in the 4th century AD, and he fell into the opposite era of the Sabellianist. In, in an effort to make distinctions in the personhood of the Godhead, he ended up demoting Jesus from the Godhead altogether. In essence, Arius declared that Jesus was a created being. Sure, he was the first of all created beings, and everything else in the universe was created through him. He didn't disagree with that. But, but to him, you know, Jesus wasn't God. He was more than a man, but he wasn't God. The problem with having a Jesus who was just a creature and not God is that it takes away from the efficacy of the cross. If Christ is not divine, then he cannot mediate between creature and creator. Today, the the most common example of this fallacy can be seen in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They will also argue that Jesus is just a created being, that he is in fact the, the archangel Michael. Again, this is a dangerous teaching. So in Sabellianism, we see a loss of the distinct personhoods of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Arianism, we see the denial of the Godhood of Christ. Both are heresies, and both are equally dangerous. Of course, there are other heresies that fall under this category as well, but I could be here all day trying to describe them all to you. But what is important is that you are able to recognize such teachings when it comes your way. One, if it attacks the distinct personhoods of the members of the Trinity, then it's heresy. Two, if it attacks the godhood of any of the members of the Trinity, then it's heresy. No ifs, ands, or buts. My notes are caught. Hold on a second. Well, that's why we rely on technology, right? (laughs) Give me one second here. All right. We'll have to go on without my notes. All right, well, the next, the next uh, problem that, that we'll see comes in uh, the other question. Is it in line with the gospel? Does the teaching agree with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And we see a, a couple different ways. If you could pull up the next slide. 
Okay. There we go. Uh, one of the things that Paul and Titus were dealing with in Crete was a form of heresy called Judaism or the circumcision group. And what this group declared was that, uh, that salvation did not come did not come by faith alone. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Normally I have it right here for me, but I'll look it up in the Bible. It says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul is not playing around here, is he? Those who, who teach false gospels like this, what does he say? Let them be eternally condemned. They are in danger of the eternal fires of hell. But not just these false teachers. Listen what he has to say to those who fall under their spell. Look at Galatians 5, verses 1 through 4. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who, who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law and have been alienated from Christ, you have fallen away from grace. Let those words sink in. Paul uses such strong language for a reason. Believing in a false gospel separates you from Christ. There, there is no salvation for those who do not repent of their sins and unbelief and trust solely in Christ for forgiveness, faith, and repentance. Those are the two things that, that get attacked in these false narratives. It's, it's either an attack on the doctrine that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or is it an attack on the necessity of repentance and salvation. We saw this with the Judaizers, the circumcision group. This is what Paul and Titus were dealing with. They, were, they, they led an attack on faith alone. They believed that a man had to contribute to his own salvation. And therefore, they taught that the Gentiles had to be circumcised 
and adhere to Jewish dietary laws and Jewish festivals. This is what we know today as legalism. It's when faith alone is not enough and, and the grace of God is nullified. And we see this in a number of churches as well in varying degrees. For instance, Seventh-day Adventists teach a form of this heresy, demanding a strict code to follow, including worship on Saturday. And the, the Hebrew Roots Movement is, a, is another up-and-coming group that maintain strict adherence to Jewish festivals and dietary laws. It's a confusion of law and gospel. And what, what it ultimately does is it downplays Christ's role on the cross and puts an emphasis on man's ability to save himself. Of course, there's the other extreme as well. There, there are those who, whose teachings attack repentance. And honestly, this, this is the message of our generation. It's, it's a form of teaching where God's grace trumps his holiness. In other words, repentance isn't Necessary. The ancient terminology for such, such groups as this was antinomianism. It, it literally means against the law. This view holds that Christians are so freed by grace that there, there are no longer any obligations to the moral law of God. In essence, there's no need for repentance. The Apostle Paul challenged such teachings in his letter to the Romans. Look at Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live, it, live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Here we see Paul's reaction to such antinomian heresy. Grace isn't a license to sin. It's freedom from sin. The reason Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead was to bring you new life. It was to free you from the slavery that you were under. This is repentance. Unfortunately, antinomian thought has been invading Christ's church in the West for quite some time. The latest example of this came in the late 90s with the rise of what is known as the emergent church or emergent Christianity. And it took the church quite a while to figure out what was going on simply because of the approach to Scripture 
into theological discourse that these new teachers were taking. Rather than stating what they believed, they were constantly asking questions. Trying to figure out what these people truly confessed was like nailing jello to the wall. Even so, many of their questions resonated with people, myself included. Last week, I, I mentioned that about 10 years ago, when we first moved to Thailand, I, I met some missionaries who, who had some heretical views. These people considered themselves to be emergent Christians, and I almost got sucked into their way of thinking. I began reading books by Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and others, all of whom put forth challenging questions to Christian orthodoxy. For example, in his book, Velvet Elvis, Rob Bell asked if the belief in the virgin birth of Christ was essential to the Christian faith. Mind you, he never claimed that he did not believe in it, but still, he, he threw the question out there as a challenge to the norm. He did so in an effort to expand the concept of who can, be, can legitimately claim the title of a Christian. You see, this is the goal of these men, to take away the exclusiveness of the Christian faith. Here's a, the basic tactic of the emergent church or an emergent Christian. One, question everything. Two, create uncertainty. And three, repaint the picture using select scriptures Designing a God and a gospel that, that suits the culture. This is what is known as postmodern deconstruction. This, this method it ignores uh, both authorial intent and the whole of the Bible. And what you end up getting is an anything goes mentality where the Christian faith is defined in the loosest of terms. In such a setting, you will tend to see people who, who claim to know Jesus and yet have not repented of their sins, for the morality of God has been questioned, doubted, and repainted. Now you may be asking yourself, why is this so important? Because without repentance, there is no salvation. How did I get rescued from such a false teaching? Well, I stumbled upon a discernment podcast called Fighting for the Faith. And on it, there was a Lutheran named Chris Roseboro who, who, who challenged these emergent leaders. He, he would pick apart their teaching by bringing it back to God's word and demonstrating, that, demonstrating the truth of Orthodox Christianity. Now, you have to understand, when, when I first heard Chris speak, I, I couldn't stand the man. I, I thought he was obnoxious and, and unnecessarily picky. Yet at the same time, I, I couldn't turn him off. I, the more I listened to him, the more I realized that he was right. For the, for the points he made agreed with the whole of Scripture. Chris was God's wake-up call to me. Not long after that, I found Asia Theological, Biblical Theological Seminary. And I, and I knew that I needed to strengthen my theology. 
and they were right there waiting to help. Now, this seminary wasn't perfect, but the professors taught what was in accord with sound doctrine, and for that, I am grateful. All right, let's, let's review. In order to ward off false teachings of the circumcision group, Paul had charged Titus to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Last week, we looked at the source questions. Where does, God, where does the teaching originate? And is the teaching consistent with the whole of the Bible? Today, we looked at the theological question. Is the teaching in line with the triune God? And is the teaching in line with the gospel? Under the first theological question, we came up with two sub-questions. Does the teaching attack the distinct personhood of each member of the Trinity? And does the teaching attack the godhood of one or more of the members of the Trinity? Then under the second theological question, we also had two sub-questions. Does the teaching attack the doctrine that man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not in their own works? In other words, is the teaching legalistic in nature? And two, does the teaching attack the doctrine that man must repent of their sins and unbelief in order to be saved? Or is the teaching antinomian against the law? Dear friends, it is easy to get sucked into false teaching. You need to be wary of what you read and who you listen to. Ask the questions that need to be asked. Take back what is said. Take it back to God's word. Even what you hear from me. I'm not exempt from this. Listen, if you are not believing in the right God, then you are committing the sin of idolatry. And if you are not believing in the right gospel, then, then you are separated from Christ, and there can be no forgiveness. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Jesus is fully man, and he is fully God. He died for your sins, and he rose from the dead three days later. And only he can bring salvation to you. Let us pray. Father, we ask for discerning ears. There are many out there who would want to deceive us. We ask for your protection, that you would watch over us. Show us who you truly are. Give us faith in your Son, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Help us to repent of our sins. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.